Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Uh, What I wanted to talk about today was uh, the, the concept of delight. The concept of delighting in God, uh, delighting in Him and delighting in who He is. Uh, you know, one of the toughest things I find as a pastor is constantly calling uh, us as people um, to uh, be dutiful about uh, our ministries, to be dutiful about worship, to be dutiful about giving, uh, to attend church, to volunteer, to be involved in discipleship, to be evangelizing, to be telling you, your friends about Jesus. It feels like when I am doing that, I am constantly uh, playing this role of a pastor who is kind of like a dad trying to get to his kids to eat broccoli. And, uh, and it feels like uh, as a church, as people, as individuals, especially in this cultural moment, we have all kinds of other things to delight us. We have all kinds of other things that we want to do, our cottages, our holidays, our boats, our, uh, our, our Netflix, our whatever it is, all these kinds of other things we have delight in. And I feel like my role is constantly calling you away from those delights to your duties. And of course, as a pastor, that makes me feel like a bad cop, feel like a bad guy. I feel like a bad guy when I call my kids to eat their broccoli. Actually, my kids like broccoli, uh, but to eat their broccoli and not eat their ice cream, right? And what I realize is that dynamic that I feel as a, as a pastor, as a leader, is, that, is actually it's a false dynamic. It's not, it's not based on truth or reality, because the reality is, is that I as a pastor, or Pastor Ivan as well, when he's calling you to the things of the kingdom, he's not calling you uh, from delight, your delights to duty. He's calling you from doldrums to true delight. You're being called from things that you think are delightful, but maybe are not as fulfilling long-term as they could be, Uh, but calling you actually into the ministries, into the vocation, into the things God calls you to, is calling you into a deeper sense of delight, a truer sense of delight. Christian worship is not a movement from delight to duty. Christian worship is a movement from doldrums to delight. It's a movement to true delight. It's a movement towards true beauty. It's a movement towards true purpose. And so what we want to do as we look at the scriptures, we're just going to take a really fast survey of the word delight and look through it, and uh, and then we're going to make some observations. So let's just look at some of these verses. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. We're going to unpack that one more later. We're going to come back to it. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You ever thought about delighting in Leviticus? I haven't. (laughs) Like that's tough stuff, right? But delight yourself in the law of the Lord. Blessed is that one. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Your testimonies, your stories, the stories of the scriptures, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. They're what teach me. Uh, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. Your commandments are a delight to me. The insolent smear me with lies. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Let your mercy come to me that I might live for your law 
is my delight. This is all through Psalm 119. It's a running theme through that incredibly long song about delighting in the law of the Lord. Listen to this. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I would have perished in my affliction if I had not delighted in your law, your instruction, your direction. I long for salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Jumping ahead to Isaiah chapter 58, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please, from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you'll find your delight in the Lord. You'll find your delight in the Lord. Talk about a case for making it out to church on Sunday and not watching Netflix all morning, right? What a delight to not just please yourself, not just do what you please, but find your delight in being part of a gathered community of worship who are coming before the throne of God to glorify him and praise him and magnify him and give him glory. That's where the delight of the heart is. Unless uh, you think that that delight is just us getting to the delight in God, listen to God delighting in himself. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is God prophesying, speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah, talking about Jesus. Oh, uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice in the nations. Listen to God delighting in his son. Matthew 3, 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son in whom I delight or with whom I am well pleased. God is delighted within himself. Our God is in heaven. He does all in which he delights. God, very God, creator of the universe, delights to do what he delights in. He is free to delight in himself and delight in all that he has made. Unless you think uh, that is just all about us being super pleased and happy and having nice cars and homes and boats and all that. Look at 2 Corinthians 12.10. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, when I'm broken, when I'm in hardship, when I'm in difficulty, those are the moments when Jesus draws near and we can delight in him. We can delight in his presence. We can delight in his nearness. And we come back to Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's just make three little observations about this verse. Uh, first one Delight yourself in the Lord is an imperative. It's a commandment. He doesn't say, you know, if you feel like it, if life is going good, take delight in the Lord. It's delight in the Lord. What does that mean? It's an imperative. Uh, it's actually, if you're a person who's driven by duty, that's all good too. You can, you can consider it your duty to delight in God. It's, your, it's our duty to see him as magnificent 
and delight in him. Uh, when we look at this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, sometimes we read that text really clearly and think, man, if I delight myself in the Lord, if I go to church, I do my devotions, I do my Bible study, I read all that, he's going to bless me, he's going to bless my business, and he's going to help me have all the things in life that I really want, good health, uh, prosperity, and all of that kind of wonderful stuff. He's going to do that for me. If I delight myself in the Lord, he's going to give me all the other stuff too. That's not what the text says at all. That's not what it says at all. If you delight yourself in the Lord, He is your desire. If you delight yourself in God, He's what you want. He's what you desire. If you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you Him. He'll give you Him. He'll give you His presence. He'll give you His glory. He'll give you nearness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you that desire. He will give you the Lord. He will give you himself. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What does that word delight mean in that text? It's such an interesting word. It, it, it's, it's not what you'd expect. That word in the Hebrew, wahitanang, means actually to, to take something or a precious thing and to be gentle with it, to consider it delicate, to consider it precious, to be dainty with it. Imagine that as our heart as we approach the Lord, like I'm approaching his presence, I'm approaching his word, I'm approaching his law, and I'm approaching it and I see how precious and how beautiful it is, and I want to cradle it. I want to just hold it in my hand. I want to see and behold the beauty of the Lord and not disturb it or ruin it, but just accept it and delight in it and take pleasure in the beauty of the Lord. Take delight in the Lord in a precious thing. We see a reflection of that in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found. He covered it up so that nobody else would find it. Then in his joy or in his delight, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Same with the pearl of great price. Do you see the beauty of the Lord as something you would sell everything that you have for? Would you sell all your stuff, all the stuff we've hoarded in our closets, to have one moment delighting in the beauty of God, delighting in the glory of God? My heart isn't always there, but that's where my heart needs to be. And in fact, in Philippians, Paul is reflecting on his life and reflecting on the suffering and reflecting on the broken relationships and the pain that he's had as he's pursued his ministry. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything else is just a loss because it's not, it's not worth anything compared to knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all as rubbish. Direct translation in the, in the Greek, I count them all as dumb. There are three letter, four letter words that you're not allowed to say in church. That's what that word means in the Greek. Paul uses what we would consider a curse word. I count it as dumb. I 
counted all as dung in order that I might gain Christ. We're called to see this treasure. Psalm uh, 16, 5 to 11. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. We think about our inheritance in the world. We think about uh, our possessions. We think about our treasure. We think about what we receive in life, what, what is allotted to us. And this is David speaking, and he had a lot allotted to him. He had treasure and a palace and wives and soldiers and land and prosperity. And he says, none of that is my allotment. None of that is my portion. None of that is my cup. The Lord is my cup. The Lord is my chosen portion. That's of all the things I have access to. That's what I want to choose. The Lord himself. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. The boundaries of his inheritance are around the Lord. It's the Lord that is in the fence that are David's boundaries. That, him, the Lord is David's delightful inheritance. That is a pleasant place indeed. Therefore, listen to this, my heart is glad. I've set the, whole, the Lord before me, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. We rejoice in that inheritance. We rejoice in him. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. Not in my mansion, not out in the field hanging with uh, my mighty men. Those are all good things. Those are all gifts from God. Those are all pleasures and joys and wonderful things that we have in life, our relationships, our home, our possessions, our friendship. But those things aren't our delight. They're not our inheritance. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you look at the three dots up in that text on the fifth line down, uh, that's a section in the psalm where he talks about the enduring nature, that it can't be taken away, it can't be stolen. It's, it's pleasures that are not just temporal, that don't wear out. It's pleasures that are eternal, pleasures forevermore. The Lord is a delight that lasts beyond your life here on earth. And so the question for us, the question for me, the question for you as we wrestle with this, am I going to be a person who will delight in the Lord? The question for me is, do I have an understanding of who God is that makes it possible for me to see him as enough? When I weigh my possessions and my things and my activities and my earthly delights and my earthly pleasures, uh, when I look at them, does that weigh more to me than him? If I go say, I'm going to chase after him, does my mind realize that he's enough or do I need to have this stuff too? Is he enough? Is he enough for me? Is he enough? 
If we're commanded to delight in the Lord, he's meant to be our chosen portion. He's our treasure. We, we hold him tenderly, daintily, delicately. We treasure every aspect, every knowledge, every thought, every word, every verse in the scriptures, and we treasure those things. Are those things enough? Or our hearts turned to all of the other things that we want? A.W. Tozer in his book, The Lighting in God, says this. He says, unless we get to know what God is like, unless we know God, we'll just accept all the superficial nonsense that passes for Christianity today. Unless we know the majesty of God, we'll just accept all the nonsense. We'll accept our toys and our treasures and our programs we could have a church between our two churches. We could build a, an amazing church program and never care to encounter the presence of Almighty God on Sunday mornings when we gather. We need to see and value the mighty presence of God. To see who He is. Our perception of God determines our perception of worship. If you see God as magnificent and mighty and holy, then it's easy to come to church on Sunday morning and stand in a row and raise your hands and praise Him saying, Glory! Glory! Glory. If we see Him, if we see Him, if we know who He is, if we have our minds, our hearts fixed, on understanding the beauty and glory of the Lord. Simon alluded to uh, this uh, amazing image from the James Webb telescope, this deep field image. You see zoomed in in the corner, it's just a, a tiny piece of it, a number of galaxies there, and you can see them in detail on the larger resolution image. And, and he alluded to this. Um, imagine yourself for a second, just to get an idea, like of all of those galaxies, that, that whole image, in that image there's 9,900 roughly galaxies. Galaxies. Not just stars, galaxies. So imagine yourself on a cold night. Maybe you go out somewhere uh, in, into the dark, somewhere up north, somewhere where you can stand on a hill, and you can look. Have you experienced that looking at the night sky in a place that's really, truly dark and you see the heavens arrayed before you? Imagine yourself going somewhere and looking up towards the north where you can spot the tail of the Big Dipper, Ursa Major, uh, that incredible constellation that is evident to everyone in the northern hemisphere. And imagine picking up a grain of sand and balancing it on the edge of your thumb in the dark, you wouldn't actually be even able to see that grain of sand in the dark. But as you look at that grain of sand and you line it up with the sky that is out there, what that grain of sand obscures, that tiny grain of sand obscures in this night sky, is 9,900 galaxies. Is God big enough? for you to take delight in him? Is he big enough for us to take delight in? Think about it, 9,000 galaxies, each one on average with about 100 million stars, 990 trillion stars covered up by a grain of sand balanced on the end of your finger. 9,000, 
900 galaxies, 100,000 stars. Imagine that you create a sphere around you <laughs> of grains of sand around your head that obscured the whole night sky. It would probably take, let's say, a million grains of sand. What that means is that what you, if you cover up the whole sky all around you, if you look at the entire cosmos, somewhere in, in, in the midst of all that is that many stars. And I've got a word for that somewhere, but it's, it's a phenomenal number. And imagine each of those stars, the amount of energy that is released by them. One megaton nuclear explosion uh, per second. One trillion megaton, one, one trillion megaton bombs per second exploding in the universe per second. Uh, and, and then I just, my brain just went to pure nerd mode. I'm already in pure nerd mode, but I went further in, in pure nerd mode. But look at this, 14.18. Okay, look at, that's how many joules it, it are released by those nuclear explosions, by one nuclear explosion. And then I thought, you can convert joules into calories. I thought, imagine, 1.8 times 10. Uh, a sec, uh, 4.8 sexdecillion calories per second expended in the universe. I wish I had a metabolism like that. <laughs> right? Uh, divide that by 1,000 calories, roughly the number of calories in a double Whopper with cheese. <laughs> and the universe is producing 1.8 quindecillion calories of energy per second. And you think of the majesty of God who spoke it all into existence with a word, who created it all with the flick of his little finger. And if you think of it in double whoppers with cheese or grande lattes, he can consume it all and will barely fill the tiniest corner of him. He created it and he can consume it. Because he is a high and holy and mighty God. Is he enough for us to take delight in? Is he enough for us to delight in? The Bible paints other pictures. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to them. That's Psalm oh, 33, Psalm 147. But then picture his throne for a moment. This is Isaiah having an encounter. It's good that the Bible does, gives us different kinds of pictures to understand the grandeur of God. But this is Isaiah in, a, in an image, in a vision that he has. It says this, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So picture a throne, and and when I picture a throne, very often, uh, when I'm calling us to worship, I try to remind us, we're not looking at the worship team, we're not looking at the set, we're not looking at the people, we're not looking at the screens. Imagine that all of this has disappeared, and the throne of God is, is before us as we worship. What would our posture be like worshiping before the throne of God? But, but imagine, like that's a small-scale throne that my mind can imagine, a throne that I could possibly go and sit on. But imagine the throne that Isaiah probably saw here. Imagine one leg of the chair is in Almont, another leg of the chair is in, uh, I don't know, like somewhere in Clayton Lake, and another leg of the chair in Carlton Place, and another one in Smith's Falls, and I don't even know if that makes a square, but it's a thousand <laughs> meters tall. It's this massive throne that's towering above us. And how do we know it's a massive throne? Because the angels that are gathered over it have their wings stretched out. And it says that that, that when the angel spoke and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The foundation of heaven shook. You know it takes a big angel to shake the foundations of heaven. The wings stretched out over the Gatineaus and far over the North Frontenac Highlands. The whole earth shaking all over us. Imagine standing before that throne with God seated on it in his splendor and in his glory and ask ourselves, is he enough in which we can take delight? (laughs) He's enough. He's enough. He's enough. And we respond. I think like Isaiah. Woe is me. Or I'm lost. Right? Woe is me. For I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Imagine our eyes being able to see the Lord of hosts. That sense of smallness, that sense of being unclean, that sense of being undone, where does that bring us? How do we light in a God when we feel like that? How do we delight in a God when we feel like utter worms, full of woe and completely undone by his majesty and glory that can bring us only one place? It brings us to the cross. It brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, we feel enormous love through the cross of Jesus Christ. We think it's, it's absolutely astounding, absolutely amazing that Jesus Christ died for us. It, it, it's incredible, and we can sit and we can glory in that. The creator of the universe loved us so much 
that we could feel that love. Can you feel it? Can you, can you believe it? Like that is an amazing, amazing thing to be able to feel the love of God like that. But that isn't the whole of the purpose for which he died. He did not die just so that you can feel love. You are not the center of the universe. It is wonderful, it is amazing that we can feel the love of God. It it is incredible that he loves us that much. But the cross did not come just to build our self-esteem, even though it does. God loved us through the cross to make it possible for us to endure his presence, to endure his holiness, to endure his splendor, to endure his majesty, to endure his might, so that we little tiny people filled with woe can cross into the holy of holies and find ourselves before the throne of God to delight in him. God saved us to delight in him. Not just to delight in the love we receive ourselves. He saved us to delight in him. To see him. To explore him. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. To just be seated before the throne. And delight in the thoughts of God. Ephesians chapter 3, 17 to 19. And I pray that being rooted and grounded and established in love. That you might have power together with all the Lord's holy people. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The cross came to make it possible for us even to grasp it. To grasp the tiniest bit of it. Established and grounded in the love of God that we feel because of what he's done for us on the cross. Empowers us to grasp the breadth of him. To know his love that surpasses knowledge. It's mind-blowing that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Imagine that. Imagine the paradox of that, the God who created this universe with quintillions of calories burning every second. And he wants you to begin to grasp the fullness of him. And for the church, uh, this, this text in Ephesians, he's not talking to us singularly, he's talking to the church that the church together would grasp the magnificence, the fullness of God. That leaves us all with just a little question. What does that do for our mission? Like, we are called to delight in him. We are called, like, you should, we should open up our Bibles and look at a verse and, like, a precious treasure, like, pour over it gently and tenderly, not to, to ruin it, not to misinterpret it, not to mess with it. We should treasure it. We should have lives that are full of devotion, lives that are full of worship, lives that are passionate to come before the throne of God with his people every Sunday morning to worship and glorify him. We should be all about that. But is that, but, but some of us are asking, what does that mean? 
mean to our mission? Don't we have some mission to the world? What is God calling us to here? What does that mean for our mission? A.W. Tozer, in his book, Delighting in God, says this, the awesomeness and beauty and perfection of our God needs to be the focus in our evangelical churches today. All efforts need to be directed here. I know the temptation is to correlate the church with the world in our misguided attempt to reach the world, but you cannot reach the world by becoming the world. The only way to reach the world is to become something altogether different from it. We are called to be a unique people. We are called to be a community uniquely focused on him, uniquely aware of his glory. As, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, we with unveiled faces behold the Lord's glory, reflect his likeness. We cannot reflect his likeness to the world unless we're in his presence. We have nothing to offer the world unless we have him. And so often our, our ministries and our missions and our outreach programs are actually weak and powerless and ineffective because we've chosen them sometimes over the worship and the delight of God himself. We've so often substituted those things. John Piper says it like this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you want God to be glorified in you, if you want him to be magnified in you, then you have to be satisfied in him. We have absolutely nothing to offer the world unless we first have him. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.